Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Mr. O'Toole, uh, let me start with this. How do you believe the entire management of the pandemic could be improved from what we're seeing from Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals? And are you of a mind that Canada should be considering returning to national lockdowns? Well, first off, no, I don't think we should have national lockdowns. We should learn the lessons from the first wave and protect the vulnerable. And we should learn the lessons with respect to to distancing, sanitation, mask use, measures of, of health protection. And this is my problem, Roy, with the Trudeau government. They have not learned a single lesson. The reason we don't have rapid tests even though Trudeau said in March it was very important to prevent the spread of COVID, is there's never any follow-through with these guys. They, they announce things, they put things on social media, and there's never any leadership in following up. That's why 15 other countries have rapid tests, and we don't. Uh, let's talk about that, the rapid testing. Where do you think it should be? What should we be doing directly? Well, we should have, in the spring, fast-tracked approval of rapid tests. And I even asked Trudeau, who doesn't seem to understand our trade agreements, uh, our European trade agreements lets us recognize some of the regulatory review of uh, European regulators. The FDA is probably the most accomplished health review body in the world. In the middle of a pandemic, for simple diagnostic tests, Roy, the fact that Health Canada won't take the data from our closest allies who have equal or maybe even more sophisticated review is a failure of political leadership. Uh, Minister Haidu, I think, has been the biggest disappointment of this entire pandemic. She's confused Canadians with her misguided words saying there's no risks of transmission person to person. She said the closing the border is not important. She was against mask usage. You know, how do you inspire confidence in your citizenry in, in, a, in a crisis when the government is late and flip-flopping on everything? So, that's, I wish we were where our allies were, and some of them are rolling them out into airports, into widespread use, millions of, of, of rapid tests available, and we have virtually nothing. Let's move away from our allies for just a moment. Do you believe Mr. Trudeau and his federal health minister have been too protective of China and the Beijing government when it comes to holding China accountable for its pandemic-related actions, like hoarding of PPEs, and then there was the issue of blocking progress of a joint Canada-China vaccine development. Well, we've said for five years now that Mr. Trudeau is naive when it comes to the Communist Party of China and the Chinese state and their intentions. And now it's costing Canadian lives because we've been asking about the fact that Trudeau and his government shut down our early pandemic warning system, which was one of the best in the world, provided 20% of the world's data in terms of tracking things like Ebola, Zika, world-class. They changed it, Roy, and substituted Canadian intelligence with open source data from the Communist uh, Party of China. If that's not one of the most reckless moves ever, Trudeau won't even acknowledge it in the House, but that left us unprepared. And then to think, he sent PPE to China when, in February, when he was being warned that tri China was trying to hoard global PPE supply, he left us unprepared. So the naivete of Trudeau on China is now 
costing jobs and lives. Let me move over to the issue of small business, something I've covered uh, in great detail, and particularly with Dan Kelly, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. The CFIB has pegged the number of small businesses which may permanently close at over 200,000 nationally. Given approximately 68% of all private sector jobs in Canada are provided by the small business sector, what would an Aaron O'Toole government do to support small business, which will be different to what we've seen from Mr. Trudeau? Well, of all things that, uh, that keep me up at night, Roy, this is the biggest one. We've got thousands of family-run businesses teetering on the edge of insolvency, uh, and two-thirds of Canadians, Roy, work for a small or medium-sized business. So we've already got an employment crisis, worst unemployment rates in the OECD, if we don't have a plan to save small business, we're going to see chronic unemployment. And I've, I've, our Conservative Party has talked about a number of ideas. We wanted uh, GST and, and tax remittances paid out to give cash flow during the pandemic. The Liberals ignored us. They set the rules for some of the, the business loans and other things too, too, uh, too detailed, too, too high up to allow a lot of uh, businesses to qualify. The rent program, Roy, only 10% qualified for rent assistance. We've been demanding that it go to the small businesses, not through large commercial corporate megalith landlords. Uh, the Liberals got it all backwards. Fortunately, our efforts is, is leading to some change, but I also think we should see more government loan support to help those small businesses restructure and not go out of business. Uh, it would be cataclysmic if we lost such a huge amount a uh, number of small businesses in this country. Mr. O'Toole, do you believe, let's move on to another one here, do you believe the Trudeau government and uh, Mr. Singh and his NDP are intent on interfering with the Canadian people knowing the truth about Justin Trudeau, Bill Morneau, and the Liberal government's engagement with We Charity over the eventually aborted $900 million plus sole source student grant program? Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Singh cooperated I don't need to tell you this, to slam the brakes on the Conservative Party motion of the Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs to investigate the scandal. Are they working together to deny Canadians the information that we should have? This is a Trudeau cover-up, uh, Roy, and, and the NDP have, have been helping him uh, in some instances, and that is absolutely shameful, and Canadians should realize this. You know that where there's smoke, there's often fire in these political scandals. Bill Morneau is gone. Trudeau prorogued the House of Commons to avoid difficult questions from Pierre Polyev and Michael Barrett, our Conservative MPs that have been holding them to account. They're, they're trying to delay the restart of committees and then violating the rules to shut down basic questions of transparency. And remember, in this scandal, Roy, it's not just Justin Trudeau, it's his family. It's insiders, it's Minister Chagger, there's several ministers linked, there's PMO, there's the Trudeau family benefiting. And clearly, insiders got special treatment in the middle of a pandemic and students suffered, small businesses suffered. So Canadians should be outraged that even in a pandemic, when Parliament wasn't sitting, when Canadians were worried, there was still one line for the Liberal insiders, the VIP line, and everyone else was in the waiting lines like we see with rapid tests now. It, it's always the Liberals put their, their friends and cronies first, and I think Canadians should be outraged. Alberta Premier Jason Kenney 
has declared an energy emergency, and I'll be speaking with the Premier on Sunday's program. Mr. O'Toole, do you support uh, Mr. Kenny on this, and how emergent a situation is it? I mean, I know you tried to raise the issue with the Federal Energy Minister in question period this week, because it's not just Alberta that's suffering, but also, of course, the massive refinery at come by chance in Newfoundland faces a very uncertain future. But when Mr. Kenny says it's time to declare a national energy emergency, are you on side? Absolutely. You know, and we have a national jobs emergency as well, Roy, because even this latest move against petrochemicals, the, the ridiculous plastic ban that Mr. Trudeau is trying to do, you know, by the way, PPE, everything restaurants are using, these are all plastic items that we've relied on. Rather than modernize recycling, have innovation as Jason Kenney and, and his government wants to do in terms of plastics, Trudeau is letting Twitter and, the, and social media lead our country. And it, there's over 100,000 jobs in Canada related to plastics. And some of the most innovative in terms of recycling and biodegradable, uh, we have the ability to innovate, not shut down tens of thousands of jobs. So sometimes I wonder who really is pulling the strings in Trudeau's PMO. He is so disconnected. Um, what is happening is really putting our country on a, on a dangerous path of, of discord, of lack of opportunity for Canadians, and we should not be accepting energy from other countries when we have incredible wealth here that Canadians, that Indigenous people, that entrepreneurs could benefit from. We have the highest standards in the world. We should be very proud of what we produce here in Canada. Yeah, we should. And uh, we're, we've really failed to capitalize on triple digits of billions of dollars um, if we sold our energy supplies internationally, uh, money that would serve to support our health and social program infrastructure in Canada. Mr. O'Toole, in 30 seconds we have left, how concerned are you about what's happening across the border in the United States? Um, I'm certainly concerned about the the unrestrained spread of, of COVID. And I, I love our longest undefended border in the world. Roy, I served alongside the Americans. I have family in the U.S., like most Canadian families do. I would like to see us get back to normal. But with just the, the, the wave of infections there, we certainly have to be, be careful. And I think uh, I would like to collaborate with the U.S. more on, on trade concerns with China and other things. So uh, I know they're in a political cycle. That will play its course. But Canada has to be serious and get along and, and find areas of mutual interest with the Americans, particularly stopping some of the unfair trade from China. We shouldn't be tweeting at the Americans like Trudeau does. We should be trying to find areas of common ground. Sarah Campbell. Now, there isn't one of us who still has a heartbeat, who um, hasn't felt a tremendous amount of empathy and support for Sarah uh, from Stratford, Ontario, she's been writing to the Prime Minister, Federal Ministers, Members of Parliament, petitioning that her fiancé, Jacob, a UK citizen, be permitted to enter this country so they could be together as Sarah fights cancer. And uh, all they want to do is get married. That was the plan in June. And then because of COVID regulations, Jacob was forced to stay in the UK while Sarah battles aggressive thyroid cancer. She's already undergone major surgery. She shared that with us. Then I had a conversation with Sarah last night. You were pretty happy. Yes, very, very happy. <laughs> How are you, Good Sarah? News. I am fantastic. Oh, Where? I got some great, great news. 
Yeah. Well, why don't you share with everybody who has probably, you know, there will be people who've heard 75% of your story, know that you wanted Jacob to be allowed to come into Canada. Yesterday morning, we wouldn't have had a happy conversation. Last evening, you and I did. Tell us what happened. Yes. So as maybe many listeners know, we the, the exemptions for committed partners, for extended family members, it was announced last Friday um, to be put into effect this this past Thursday, so just two days ago. Um, and two days ago, the process came out. It was a little bit more complicated than we had anticipated and we had planned for. So we were caught in this really, really big bind where we were on a, on a timeline, a tight timeline to do with both our, our, our planned wedding as well as my upcoming radiation treatment. And at the very last possible minute at 5.40 p.m. last night, our exemption was approved. So Jacob got on a plane, at, you know, like four, well, it was like, you know, four or five o'clock our time this morning. And he lands in less than two hours on Canadian soil. So we're going to be reunited tonight. That is the best news. And I bet you, you know, to the inch where that plane is right now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> less than two hours to go. <laughs> So what are your plans for this evening? What uh, what happens, uh, you know, you see each other for the first time in, in months, big dinner planned, what's going on? You can just tell me to mind my own business. Just tell me to mind my own business, Sarah. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, be, because I'm still going through cancer treatment, I am still dealing with a compromised immune system. Of course. So we have to be as absolutely as careful as possible. So we're allowing ourselves to have one hug, will be outdoors uh, with masks on and then I will you know voluntarily self-isolate uh, apart from Jacob apart from Jacob uh, he'll quarantine in our basement and I'll, I'll stay upstairs so it's you know it's not only for the health and safety of Canadians but for my health as well so we're allowing one hug one hug no kissing <laughs> no other contact but that's it <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm sorry, but I just I just shoved coronavirus out of the equation as much as I could. Because I, I will never forget, and I told you this last night, I wish you were my daughter, by the way. When, no. When, when I heard the joy in your voice, I wished I'd been able to record it so everybody could hear. I mean, we can hear it now. But yeah. last evening, there was this absolutely unrestrained joy in your voice. Uh, it's still, I mean, I'm a little anxious right now because, you know, he still has to land and get through, you know, CBSA, but the joy is coming, Roy. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> this also has to help you emotionally as you face the remainder of your cancer treatment. Absolutely. My, my biggest fear, learning that the, the exemption process was a bit more complicated was that Jacob would not be given an exemption in time for him to come to Canada and quarantine for two weeks and and be with me as I as I face this next step. It's, it's a form of radiation therapy that I have to do still. So, but I mean, I it is such a relief and a burden lifted off of my shoulders that I know now that he's going to be there for that. I can't even I can't I don't even have words to describe it. It's it's just relief. This is just amazing. I'm, I'm sure everybody listening to you now who's heard you on the show before can hear the difference in your voice. 
It's, <laughs> it's just happiness. Now, may I ask you, uh, I don't know, I should have done this off the air first, but here we go. You two, <laughs> you two have plans for later this month, don't you? Yep. So the day after the quarantine ends, we're going to get married. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm so excited. We had to postpone our wedding in June, and now it's finally happening October 25th, and I am more than thrilled. Um, we, uh, I'll put a side note. We live in, uh, I live in Stratford, so the new restrictions on Toronto, Peel, and Ottawa don't apply to us. So we're, we're, well, we're having a small wedding reception, just 30-odd people, so still very safe. But, uh, yeah, I am thrilled to finally be a bride. <laughs> this is the greatest story of all. This is just such a great story. Um, uh, so, so now, when Jacob arrives, I, you and I will talk later this evening, but I'm just hoping that we can actually speak with both of you tomorrow. But a lot going mm-hmm. on between now and then, and we don't know, you know, let's just leave that. If we have an opportunity to speak with you both, that would be terrific. But you also, you have something you want to say about other Canadians who are waiting for their loved ones to be admitted. Absolutely. You know, up until this point, I think Jacob and I are the only exemption that's actually been approved. And I just want to say to everyone still waiting, you know, your fight is not over, but your win is coming. You're, you know, you have worked so, so hard for this and we're behind you a hundred percent. The fight is not over. This is just the beginning. I know some people were um, excluded from the exemptions to begin with. And some people have been told it may be up to two weeks for them to be approved, but you know, I am with you 100%. Make no mistake, we are going to fight to the end for everyone's family to be reunited and to feel the joy and the relief that I feel in this moment. You are just an incredibly remarkable young woman, and Jacob's a very lucky young man. Uh, Well, I'm the lucky one. (laughs) I always enjoy uh, conversations with our next guest. Yves Giroux is the parliamentary budget officer mr Giroux, is uh he's really one of my favorite guests because well i just feel like i get answers when i ask questions and he's actually invited me out for a beer on his expense account is that right mr Giroux? did i remember that correctly well my expense account will be very is very slim so it will come out of my own pocket but yes you remember <laughs> that very correctly thanks for coming back on the show good to talk to you likewise let me ask you about the, um, and this is serious business, but I like it when we can be uh, just a little relaxed with guests as well. Of the $655 million in federal government sickness benefits, does your office estimate only about $50 million will go to Canadians suffering with COVID-19? And what's the story there? Well, the story there is the number of cases of COVID is is rising but it's still we're still talking thousands of people so and most people with covid have either sick sick leave benefits at work or have some kind of insurance so those that will get sick with covid and don't have insurance will represent therefore a very small share of all those who will benefit from these uh, these new sickness benefits so that's the story right there and there won't be any medical certificates required it'll be a, um, an honors based system so to speak so that's why we estimate that a small portion of those who will benefit from the sickness benefit will themselves be affected directly or will suffer from covid 
So most of the money will go to Canadians who have other illnesses. That's very likely to be the case, in fact, yes. Now, let me ask you about this uh, 26-week caregiving benefit. Uh, Most of the money within that benefit will go to parents taking care of children. So if I have this correctly, more than $1 billion of the $1.4 billion set aside for this program, uh, for this and next fiscal, will go to parents needing to stay home caring for their children and another $300 million to care for children who've already contracted COVID. Is that how it breaks down? Yeah, that's, uh, that's how it breaks down because of their kids being sick or suspected of being sick with COVID, uh, children under, under 12, as well as children who are above 12. And that's, uh, that's exactly the, the, the breakdown. Of course, it's all projections based on the way things are shaping up to be. We can have a pleasant surprise, or I hope not, but we could also have an unpleasant surprise if the number of kids infected turns out to be higher than what we expect. But it's very difficult to predict that um, given the uh, unpredictability of the disease and how, how we all behave and how it spreads among, among young people. Mm-hmm. What, what can you share with us about uh, the path for the suite of benefits replacing CERB? Um, it's, uh, it's, I think it's probably providing less of a disincentive to work given that most people who are employed will be uh, on EI for which there is um, some form of enforcement and some clear criteria that you have to be looking for a job in order to receive benefits. Even though the criteria to be eligible to EI have been relaxed, the number of hours has been decreased significantly, and there has been a minimum uh, amount of weekly benefits uh, set up, and and the benefit, the minimum benefit has been set at uh, a few hundred dollars per week, four or five hundred dollars, I forget the exact number. So it's similar to CERB uh, in terms of the level of benefits, but the enforcement and the administration resembles very closely to what we are well used to, which is EI. So in that sense, it provides more of an incentive to work uh, compared to the CERB that ended uh, at the end of September. This is one that I think many people, most people, are probably very interested in, and that is the cost for a proposed national dental care coverage for uninsured households with less than $90,000 income. Uh, estimated at $1.5 billion per year and a cost of $3 billion up front. Is it your view that uh, governments need to step up and cover dental care for Canadians in this kind of situation? Well, that could be the subject of another beer between you and me as to whether <laughs> I think that's the way to go or not. That's up to politicians to decide and Canadians to collectively decide if we want to have a dental benefit or a dental program available to all those who are not covered. My job is not to pronounce on the merits of these programs. It's to determine or try to provide information on the cost and the impacts of these programs. So it's a, a collective decision as to whether we want to, um, to, to cough up, uh, I think it's $4.5 billion in the first two years because of all the pent-up demand, all those people who don't have a dental program and would need catching up on dental services, and then $1.5 billion per year thereafter. So it's a collective decision. My role is not to say it's a good idea or it's a bad idea. It's up to Canadians like 
like you and uh, everybody who, who votes and politicians to decide that. But yeah. of course, if we went for a beer, probably round two, uh, we can have a, a discussion about that. I was going to say we're already up to two beers, you and me. Yeah, it's starting to uh, to get very close to abuse. <laughs> <laughs> oh my so what are some of the other what are some of the other um i'm losing track here sidebar <laughs> issues and numbers we should know about when it comes to a, a dental plan a, a you know a public dental plan well a dental plan that uh, the, the one where we've been asked to cost uh, we were given parameters so it would be available for people with income uh, household income up to $90,000. And for those with an income that's, I think, starting at 30000 something, but I, I forget the exact, uh, the exact amount, there will be a contribution asked. And those who make above $90,000 will no longer be eligible for that, uh, that dental program. So it, for, it would be for low and middle income households. And for low income households, um, most of the services would be free. For middle income households, there would be a contribution. And for those probably like you who are uh, above the uh, average income, like above $90,000 of income, then um, no services would be available. It would all be out of pocket. I'm kidding. I don't know your income, and I'm, I don't want you to pronounce on I'm that. sure that everybody in government knows exactly how much I earn. <laughs> uh, no, it's something, in fact, having worked at CRA, it's something that's held very closely. Very few people have access to that. That's good to know. I was oh, on yeah. vacation. I'm sorry. No, no, they are very serious about the confidentiality Good. of taxpayer information. Yeah, that's very important. I was on vacation when you issued when your office issued the economic and fiscal outlook. Um, can you just walk us through um, some of the most significant highlights? Uh, yeah. So uh, we looked at the fiscal and economic situation. Um, using all the programs that had been announced up to and including September 1st. So that was before the speech from the throne. And we said, okay, what if government put things on autopilot? Everything that's been announced to that date is implemented as announced, and the programs that are set to expire, expire as expected. And we find that the deficit for the current fiscal year would be about $330 billion, and it would after that decrease gradually, well, quite abruptly in the second year to $74 billion. And over time, by the, by the year 2025-26, we'd be at a deficit of about $35 billion. So, but that supposes no additional investments or expenditures from the government. And also, it doesn't require additional tax increases. So before I saw the number, I was a bit depressed at the level of the deficit, personally. Uh, but when I saw these numbers, I was somewhat reassured because without tax increases and assuming, and that's a big assumption, that there are no significant new ongoing investments or expenditures, then the, the deficit would go back to uh, a more reasonable level, to something that's more like what we are used to seeing or we were used to seeing before the pandemic. So yeah. that was the, the main the main conclusion of the report that once the pandemic is under control or over, we can expect deficits to return to more, I'd say, acceptable levels or more familiar levels com com uh, compared to what we are seeing right now. All right. 
Mr. Giroux, thank you very much. Good talking to you. We'll have to catch up on those beers eventually because they're just going to mount and then, you know, people get in trouble with that sort of thing. So, <laughs> Yeah, looking forward to that. Admiral Norman, thank you very much, as always, for taking the time. And uh, I'm just looking at a couple of nations you and I talked about last time we had a conversation. China and Russia and the West, including Canada. China continues its bullying of any other country it views as being challenging. And Russia reported a successful hypersonic missile test. Can you speak to those issues separately, please, Admiral, beginning with China? Yeah, good afternoon, Roy. Well, certainly, I mean, when we spoke last, we discussed uh, sort of broader concerns. And uh, I think as we look at the last couple of weeks, we can see um, a couple of uh, very good examples of uh, continued concern, particularly in uh, the South China Sea, a very important region um, for uh, world security and a very important region for Canada because what happens there uh, impacts uh, the broader security situation uh, elsewhere in the world. Um, we've seen uh, Chinese reaction to uh, both the United States uh, naval transit of the Taiwan Strait, and we've also seen a reaction to a Canadian ship HMCS Winnipeg that was also in the Taiwan Strait in the last uh, in the last week or so. And uh, why this is important is because uh, China continues to maintain. Uh, that uh, Taiwan is uh, part of their uh, extended territorial uh, territory. They see it as a rebel province. And uh, the second concern is that, uh, you know, the, the, the distance between China and Taiwan at uh, almost 200 kilometers is uh, well beyond any reasonable interpretation of maritime law, even if they did think it was their territory. And uh, so it's uh, entirely appropriate that allied forces such as the United States, Canada, and others would uh, exercise freedom of navigation transits uh, through those waters to demonstrate that they don't, uh, they don't accept China's position. But this is uh, continuing to escalate and uh, is, is of concern. And, and Canada does have a role to play, Admiral. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have a role to play in uh, in terms of the kinds of things that we're doing, albeit on a small scale, but we also have a role to play in terms of uh, how we choose to um, exercise our relationship uh, with China and with Taiwan, which uh, we haven't really been particularly clear about in the past. And, and I think, uh, you know, unfortunately, this is situation where you know as long as we continue to uh, let things fester it's uh, it's not going to get any better and we're going to have to uh, i think take a stand um going forward so now russia uh, how serious an international player is russia in 2020 and does their claim of a hypersonic missile test successful they say change military dynamics i'll i'll address the the second part of your question first um I think, you know, as we look at hypersonics as a, um, an emerging technology, um, that they are, they are of concern. Um, you know, there's two camps. Uh, one camp would argue that this is simply an evolution of, uh, you know, existing technology. And another camp would argue that, no, this is, uh, this is in fact, a bit of a, a game-changing technology. Well, we've seen this in history in the past where uh, certain technologies have had uh, significant impact um, on uh, not only how 
uh, forces may or may not interact um, at what I would describe as the tactical level in terms of how how uh, war fighting would would take place, but they also have a significant impact on how um, potential um, countries would see um, the, this technology being a threat to them. Um, there's no there's no question that the West, uh, the United States in particular, uh, they're openly uh, recognizing that hypersonics are a concern. Um, there's a lot of uh, research and development going into the development of hypersonic technology in the West, and more importantly, how do you defend it? I mean, the challenge is really got two uh, significant problems. First of all, I mean, th- th- these weapons are going at incredible speeds. Uh, Mach 5 is the minimum. It can be upwards of Mach 15 or 20 if the technology will permit it. Um, uh, they're, they're relatively small um, virtually impossible to detect because of the speed and 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 uh, and size and then the the other problem is that uh, if uh, they impact the target uh, they're going to do so with such kinetic force that they have uh, an asymmetric uh, effect i mean it's just a disastrous effect what we saw with russia in the last week or so was the successful launch of a variant of a hypersonic uh, designed uh, specifically for anti-ship um, activity. So that would be used uh, to fire uh, against a ship and potentially against a large, uh, very important ship such as an aircraft carrier. So this is a significant concern. Okay. As far as Russia's place um, in the world and, and uh, how that is evolving, um, I, think, I think it's important to um, keep in mind that Perhaps how Russia sees itself, um, and it sees itself as uh, a world player. I mean, it's a nuclear power. It does have uh, significant military capability. Uh, they are our one of our northern neighbors. So uh, it is a is it a country um, um, that is more important to Canadian defense and security than perhaps others. Right. And um, you know, I, I don't think anything that Russia is doing should be overlooked or dismissed. Uh, okay. I, I, I think it should be taken seriously. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to the Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.